Welcome to Nepal Now. My name is Marty Logan. Obviously, I don't know if it's harder to be a woman in Nepal than in other places. But often it seems like it must be. Around 1,200 women here die each year giving birth, many from a simple post-delivery hemorrhage. The fact that no one seems to know the exact number of deaths speaks volumes about the importance that officialdom places on the issue. Tens of thousands of other women endure the condition known as uterine prolapse, where the uterus descends towards or through the vagina, the result of, among other reasons, child brides giving birth when their bodies are still not fully developed, or of mothers returning to hard physical labor too soon after giving birth. For every 110 boys born, only 100 girls come into the world, the result of sex selection that rejects girls as burdens on their families. They will be raised only to be given away and sent to live their adult lives with their husband's family. Women across all strata of Nepali society are ostracized during their periods. In many families, they are forbidden from entering the kitchen or have been socialized to avoid religious temples. In extreme cases, in the villages of western Nepal, menstruating women are forced to live in windowless sheds outside their homes. As in other countries, women in Nepal are bearing a heavier burden than usual during the COVID-19 pandemic including caring for out-of-school children and homebound husbands. Family planning, already a challenge in a patriarchal society, has become more difficult as health facilities run out of supplies. Fearful of catching the coronavirus or unable to find transportation, one half of pregnant women are shunning health facilities, skipping vital pre- and post-birth appointments. Despite this negative outlook, our guests on this episode did have some ideas for making life better for Nepal's women. Pallavi Payal is a researcher and activist on women's rights with a focus on Nepal's southern Madesh or Terai region. Samita Pradhan is team leader of the Women's Reproductive Rights Program at the Center for Agroecology and Development. As usual, Apologies for any strange sounds that crept into the episode. We recorded this remotely, and background sounds included ambulances visiting hospitals in Pallavi's neighborhood. By the way, our next episode will be the last in this first series by Nepal Now. Check out our social media to have a say on which topic we'll be discussing. As always, you can like or follow the podcast on the usual players, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or email me at marty at martylogan, M-A-R-T-Y-L-O-G-A-N, dot net. And now, Pallavi and Samita. Samita and Pallavi, welcome to Nepal Now podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Marty. Uh, thank you, Marty, for inviting me. Um, I'm very happy and excited to share my own insights and understanding on the topic today. Great. Well, uh, let's get started. My goal for today is to kind of do a reality check on the situation of women in Nepal. Um, undoubtedly, things have changed a lot since the pandemic hit earlier this year. But before we talk about that, I'd like to get your opinions on where we were before the pandemic. And uh, Samita, I know you've been working on issues of women's health and women's rights for a long time. Um, so would you say that progress was being made um, from the time you started some years ago to the present day? Is the situation for, Has it, the situation for women been improving? Um, yes, I see definitely uh, it's improving since I worked uh, 20 years back, how I see, how I saw the women uh, at that time. And the big change I see, and I can say right now, we have uh, women leaders like 
for example, we have 41% of uh, women leaders in our local government. Uh, that I see a big change. Um, however, um, it has um, so many other issues as well. When I see in the village, women are, they can talk about themselves, um, they can express themselves. Uh, it depends where I am, where we are in Nepal, but still, um, most of the women are taking lead and they are active, you know, and some, many of uh, the women are activists. So I can see the changes, but that's not the, that's not the goal that we haven't achieved yet. Uh, for example, uh, when I said uh, we have so many women leaders in our local government, but there's a big question whether they have you know, decision-making power in the local government. Um, we can see in our parliament as well, you know, how many women can um, speak about the issues and how many women can uh, women parliamentarians have uh, say in their meetings, you know, in the decision-making um, process. So that's a big question. Uh, and also um, around the houses and on the families, well, I, I can see changes uh, more in the hills in compared to uh, Tarai women. So there are changes, but, um, you know, it's going slow. Okay, okay. That's a that I think that's a great starting point, and a good summary. So, you're saying that some progress has been made. It's yeah. not uniform about across the country. There are different uh, levels of progress across the country, and also some of the progress may look like progress, but may not actually be at least 100% change. Like you say, women being in positions, but whether or not they they actually have the power that let's say a man in the same position would have um that's still that's still to be seen samita i wanted to ask you in particular about the work that you've done over the years uh on the issue of uterine prolapse i know this has been a focus of your work over uh, the last uh, decade and more so do you do you think that progress has also been made in that specific area uh, yes definitely uh, progress has been made uh, there are a few things that I can say uh, right now um, government is providing free surgical treatment across the country and also uh, there are many um, not many but um, there are quite a few NGOs working on this issue uh, at the moment when we started working, there were very few um, NGOs working on that issue. And also, um, NGOs were working on only uh, surgical treatment um, aspect, uh, which is not uh, you know, comprehensive. So we wanted something like comprehensive management of uterine prolapse. So also during the screening camps where government is uh, conducting those screening camps, uh, um, quite a you know like hundreds of women are coming to get the services and that this this shows that uh, women are uh, uh, you know seriously looking for some remedy some uh, solution for their problem and they are also uh, openly talking about this issue uh, earlier they didn't used to they were embarrassed to talk about this issue even like uh, you know their husbands were embarrassed to talk about their uh, wives um, a problem, reproductive uh, morbidity problem. But now even husbands come to our, like, for example, colleagues or um, to the health workers. So we, uh, I can say that uh, we were successful um, in, in, you know, influencing government to uh, uh, design this problem, uh, design this uh, program um, to provide free surgical treatment. Having said that, uh, we, we are still advocating with government uh, uh, to see this problem, to take up this problem as a uh, comprehensive way. Um, providing surgical treatment is not only the solution, 
so we have to prevent this problem or unless we pro prevent this problem this uh, problem uh, continues uh, yeah when we uh, discuss about the root causes of uterine prolapse then yes uh, one of the major uh, causes is uh, marrying at uh, early age child marriage and you know giving childbirth at uh, early age so that is one of the that is seen one of the major causes and you can see you can uh, uh, all of us are aware that you know the in, in nepal almost uh, 40 percent uh, prevalence of child marriage it depends um, where you are causes of child marriage is also uh, you know shifting the adolescents are getting married uh, by themselves they are eloping it's not only the parents they are forcing children to do the child marriage but children are doing themselves because of the you know so many other influences uh, so that is becoming a real um, problem when girls marry at young age then you know she will uh, suffer for the whole life you know not only for her, for her reproductive health but it's her education she is deprived of education she's deprived of uh, indep independence economically financially and socially you know she's not able to make any decisions she has to work as a labor at home with her in-laws so there are so many things uh, around that that that's a one one problem the child marriage but and uh, she has no say at home she faces uh, her husband's uh, violence, uh, her husband's uh, getting married. Another woman again, you know, so many, so many repeated, continuous problem in her whole life. So when they have this problem, so how could they express themselves? How could they say that, uh, okay, I need a health checkup or I need to go uh, to a meeting, you know? They, they cannot say that they don't they are not allowed to say anything I, and i have seen uh, uh, women in thorai they do not have any say at home they have to stay at home um, in comparison to um, uh, girls and women uh, from hills uh, culturally uh, it's very difficult for them to come out you know so to to speak out so it's their situation a girl is brought up that way a woman is brought up that way so how can we be empowered how can we be a leader for later in in the future so that's a big question so uh, when we talk about the empowerment um we should uh, start that empowerment process from the uh, early childhood until now they only have to listen to the parents and the community they have to make themselves capable of for making themselves independent, you know, education-wise, financially, and um, to be more active, to lead the family, to lead the community. So that's how I see uh, at the moment. Right, right. And it sounds like one of the keys to raising girls and then women who have all of those qualities you, you mentioned, are independent and able to take decisions, one of the key factors there would be education. Um, and this, I think, is a good time to kind of go into the next section we wanted to talk, or I wanted to talk about, which is how has the pandemic changed the lives of women in Nepal? And one of the things that uh, we're all aware of um, is that you know the education system, for many children, education is has just ended for many months now because they can't physically go to school. For the lucky children who are living in bigger centers and have access to online learning, there's still some sort of education, but but um, there's been a big disruption in education and, and many other things, but not just in Nepal. Around the world, too, we've heard about rising incidents of domestic violence, uh, restricted access to sexual and reproductive health services, women being forced to give up jobs, and even you know my home country, Canada, mm -hmm. where women are seen to be so uh, advanced in terms of equality. Many career women 
are having to go home and look after their children and are being forced to give up their career, you know, to choose between looking after their family and looking after their career. And, you know, some speculation that many of them won't be able to go back to their careers they had before the pandemic. So this is certainly a, a global issue. I mean, for the both of you, maybe Palavi, we can start with you this time. For you, what is the most important or the major impacts of the pandemic on women? Definitely, pandemic has brought a lot of challenges for women in particular in Nepal. Uh, as for the news and reports that we are hearing every day, we hear a lot of increase in domestic violence. And uh, if we just look at the data from, you know, 24th of March, from the time the lockdown started to 29th of May, Warwick has reported that we have around 465 cases of gender-based violence which is a lot and it must have increased. Likewise, we have National Women Commission saying that their um, hotline receives at least one complaint in 10 minutes. It says a lot about uh, the situation of women currently. And if we talk about this pandemic, which brought a lockdown, every family member is at home. So there is an increase in you know, the domestic burden on women. In a patriarchal country like Nepal, everything, all the housework is, mm. you know, pushed on women and they have to take care of it. So the women who are also working, they have like a double burden, They're constantly being at home, take care of the home and also the work. So it has added a lot of burden there. And if we look into deeper things, then, uh, you know, the pandemic has, you know, given our government and our uh, parliament to bring about controversial laws and controversial amendments. And I'd like to add that the citizenship bill, that's the most controversial one right now. I think the government took the opportunity to bring that law uh, so that the people don't go on the street protesting about it. That is one, uh, you know, negative points that uh, that might lead to bigger challenges in the future. And uh, if I add more, uh, especially the women in Tarai, uh, because I recently had some webinar with them, uh, with the representatives of the Tarai, according to them, um, after the migrant workers returned back home, they lost their jobs. And most of the migrant workers were men and they were kept in quarantine for a long time. So the breadwinner of the family, the, in the person who brought income to the family was in the quarantine without any you know, support for the family, which made the women in the family more vulnerable. It added more pressure on them, more stress on them. You know, so they are also going through a lot of challenges that way. Okay, yeah, those are uh, definitely important um, negative developments for, for women in Nepal. And the, you know, the, the last point in particular about migrant workers and their families, I mean, that situation is ongoing, obviously, as, you know, the men are still here. And even after they exit from the quarantine centers, then there's the whole question about employment and getting work, right? And and if they don't get work, then there's one breadwinner and probably the major breadwinner of the family is still out of work. And again, that puts more more pressure on, on the women at home. Yeah, and I would like to add one more thing. You know, uh, there's a research done that if you, if the man of the family is not earning, you know, he distracts himself with drinking habits and he releases the pressure and stress on his wife, on the women in the family. So women become more vulnerable to domestic violence. Right, yes, I've, I've definitely heard that. I mean, another point I know from a bit of reporting I did is in terms of pregnant women, uh, especially outside of major centers, and how now they're not using sexual and reproductive health services like they did before, in part because they're worried about going to a big uh, medical center, either a hospital or another health facility, because they're scared of the, vi the virus, or they have a transportation problem, or perhaps they have no, no cash um, to use when they go to these centers, so more women having birth at home, uh, which excel, uh, itself raises the risk for pregnancy. So that's, uh, that's another way. Samita, what, have, what has your organization seen you know, on the ground in these last six months or so? How are women being affected because of the pandemic? What are the main impacts they're seeing? 
Yes, very much, very much. They have uh, affected very much. Like um, if we talk only about the reproductive health services, um, yeah, they are not uh, able to go for the like pregnant women, especially they are not able to go for the antenatal checkup and not for the, uh, you know, delivery in, at uh, health centers. Um, also, when they go to the health post for antenatal checkup and uh, nurses, they say like they are not prepared either. I mean, and they they do not touch other people. It's not that that they do not touch uh, other women, but they don't do physical examination for the uh, pregnant uh, women. And unless they do physical examination, they do not know what's going on, uh, and uh, they just provide some medicines um, or you know iron pills and uh, calciums. But later on, they said. They did not get uh, that even that iron pills and calcium tablets. Also, when we talk to the health workers, they say they do not have any, any protection to do a physical examination. And women, you know, the like uh, pregnant women, they walk at least two three hours minimum to reach to the health centers, and they do not get any uh, services they wanted. So. So many women uh, are not uh, going to the health centers at the moment um, during those uh, lockdown days. Uh, women have not been able to deliver child at health centers. That's a big problem again. And uh, we all know that um, like uh, 56 women have lost their lives during uh, uh, at childbirth. Um, some have got emergency uh, services. But um, not all of them uh, can have that. Uh, the other problems women are having, like uh, Pallavi, as Pallavi said, uh, their husbands come back um, at home and they don't have any contraceptives access. Uh, it's not there in the health centers. So they, are, they have now uh, unwanted pregnancies. And there's no abortion centers open. So they have unsafe abortions. And, and they are the ones you know, facing all these kinds of problems. Women have been, you know, started using health centers for childbirth, and now suddenly they don't have these services. So they have um, all kinds of violences uh, women are suffering at the moment, like, uh, for example, even like uh, marital rape, you know. They can't deny, they can't deny the sexual um, relations with their husband, and there's no contraceptives available. So they have you know stressful period at the moment and women have have you know double burden when their children used to go to school and they were you know they were free to do their work but now they have to take care of their children and they uh, they have to take care of their husbands and elders um everything they have to do so they are well overburdened they they think that it's normal for them to have like morbidity problem if they have emergency, if they have complications, yes, they go or our family take them to the hospitals or to the health health centers. But if they have like morbidity problems, like you know cervical cancers or uterine prolapse, that's not life threatening at the moment, right? So immediately, so it's not their priority to go to the health centers. So it's getting, you know, very challenging for women uh, to cope all these issues, all these problems at home, you know, during this uh, pandemic. And I understand that uh, they are not even fully aware, you know, what's happening. If they, if we, our colleagues are going to the villages at the moment, but you know, they 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 told me that it's very difficult to uh, keep, uh, you know, physical distance, social distance in the village because. Uh, they are not um, aware of it. They are not. Uh, they don't know in how much social distance, how much physical distance they have, we have to keep. It's not their um, priority, you know, and it's not very serious problem for them until it comes to their home. Also, you know, uh, I was very surprised to uh, hear that child marriage is increased during this pandemic. I had not thought of that. Like. Mm, they would do child marriage during this pandemic, but it's increased. So it's it's because like um, 
they don't have to tell anybody it's they did it quietly in in sarlai it, uh, only in the four villages that we work 38 child marriages was conducted uh, by the parents and uh, it was very quiet and nobody knew it so we knew it very late women activists or um, activists who are working on this issue they were not present in the village either and there was no like village authorities um, monitoring those uh, problems and uh, police also police were also busy in other problems so this pandemic brought you know so many challenges wow that's uh, i didn't hear that either about well i think i might have heard vaguely about child marriage increasing but certainly not a figure like that i mean 38 38 marriages happening and because no one was basically there to to watch to inspect or to monitor but at the same time the underlying social conditions haven't changed uh in in fact they they may be getting worse right so that puts more maybe more pressure on people to think about um uh, child marriage so that's uh, that's very worrisome to hear to hear that palavi can we um go back to the issue of this citizenship bill i've been uh, around nepal long enough to know that this has been a long standing issue um but i guess being someone who believes in this idea of progress things gradually get get better um i would have thought that the thinking behind this bill generally to restrict citizenship for women that thinking would have slowly gone away would have died off but can you give us a quick recap of the bill and what's behind the bill like the idea behind these restrictions that are in the citizenship bill this and your your feelings about it i think it was in a few months ago that the citizenship bill was approved by the ruling party and i think the upper house i'm not sure which one uh, it has been approved and i think uh, after some times it will be passed as well uh, but we are trying our best to stop it or maybe at least raise some voice uh because you know this uh, entire citizenship bill and the different clauses in the bill are absolutely discriminating um i can even say that it's homophobic transphobic uh, first of all it does not recognize a nepali woman as a nepali person as a whole uh because unless until and unless she's married to a nepali man so her identity is again like based on the person she marries and that has to be a man it doesn't even talk about same sex marriages Uh, so it's regressive in that way and it also raises a questions or tries to restrict the choice of women to get married to or uh, uh, married to a person of her choice it restricts them by the border uh, so it does not allow a woman to pass on the citizenship to her children by descent and to pass on the citizenship to her husband the bill does not talk about how a woman will uh, provide citizenship to her husband if she gets married to a foreigner foreign man so it's kind of insulting and also difficult for women to you know uh, get citizenship rights in that way and on top of that it has also uh, has has this clause that uh, prevents uh, women uh, foreigner foreign women who get married to nepali men to wait for 7 years to get citizenship which means that for 7 years the woman would be uh, stateless because in nepal the only identity card that is accepted for all kinds of work is the citizenship in the meantime they have also mentioned something about the residential card but i did some research and talked to some you know constitutional lawyers and everybody and according to them there is no such provision in nepal there is no provision of residential uh, card at all so i don't know if i can believe the government that they are going to introduce this card or not uh because that's going to be another difficult thing and this uh, the issue of citizenship is important because you know citizenship in nepal more than around 300 government institutions required citizenship for you know different kinds of employment even to get sim card even to do different kinds of businesses and on top of that if we need to introduce another residential card we need to change 34 laws in the constitution and uh, i don't uh, other places to make that you know applicable 
So honestly speaking, I don't believe the government when they say that they're going to take care of these stateless women. And I feel like particularly this is going to affect uh, Modesi women because in Madhis, we have this cross-border marriages that has existed long time before the political border existed between Nepal and India. Uh, we have this uh, cultural, our cultural and social identity is based on that. Even in my family, I can say more than uh, two or three persons are from India. My aunts are Indians. They got married to Nepal. So we have that kind of relationship. So I feel like there is this uh, bill is kind of an attack on Madhisi women, Madhisi, uh, you know, um, social uh, social identity, cultural identity in a way. And we are still struggling to create awareness on what kind of, uh, you know, uh, problems this can create. Uh, of course, uh, this is going to affect the seven years waiting period is going to affect the entire nation, but particularly it is going to affect the Modesi women. And the problem right now is even with the rights activists, they say that uh, the seven years waiting period has been practiced in different countries. So let it be. Let's talk about other issues. And I believe that other issues are important, but the seven years issue is also important and it should be one of the reasons to you know, raise voices. We talk about equality, but what the debate has been until now is that uh, the seven years waiting period is fine to make men equal, the foreign men who marry uh, Nepali women, to make them equal, reduce their waiting period and make it make it seven, which basically means that make the women unequal to make the men equal. So in terms of debate and discussions also, I'm finding it pretty difficult to navigate. Uh, yeah, that's all. Right, okay, yeah, it's, um, it's uh, complicated. I mean, I'm a, Take my example, I'm a foreign man married to a Nepali woman. Um, and I do hear a lot of people bringing up this this issue. Um, but I think you're right. I think the much bigger issue is the population of people living in the Madesh and how how this affects them. Let, let me yeah. ask you, you know, Nepal is recognized interna internationally for a lot of progressive measures in terms, especially in its in its constitution and rights human rights that are enshrined in the constitution yet in this one particular area citizenship rights for for women it doesn't look like any progress has been made and in fact you could argue that you know the thinking is going back backwards is there some way that you can explain why we're in that nepal is in the state it's in so uh you're right. It looks like Nepal is moving back. Back, It's going more like it's regressing in terms of citizenship. And I feel like the emergence of this kind of, you know, the beginning of this kind of clause and all comes again back from, you know, um, uh, first of all, uh, having a patriarchal mindset that we have in every sector in Nepal. But on top of that, uh, there is this uh, fear-based nationalism among Nepali people. You know, we have this fear that uh, someday, you know, Indian citizens will come and take over the country. Then this is based on all myth and created myth around this citizenship issue. So when I talk about citizenship, uh, it's not only a gender issue; it's a highly political issue also. And there is a fear that you know, if a foreign lots of foreign women who uh, mostly Indian women, it's actually mostly Indian women who get married to Nepali people if they get the citizenship and if they give birth to the children, their children might take over all the you know important positions in Nepal. However, you know the constitution has already restricted them. They cannot uh, you know get into top positions in Nepal. So there is already and rest already a restriction placed there. So it's like. Uh, they are trying to protect their fear by adding more clauses, more restrictions to the already existing problem. If you present a debate, an argument based on that kind of fear, then we need evidence for that fear, but there is no evidence of that. So I feel like it's gender issue as well as a political nationalist issue that has you know, brought on this kind of thing. And you know, nationalist issue always prevents a person from being progressive a person from being logical in their argument in you know in the in their work so i think it is the product of that okay thanks thanks for um articulating that i, I think it, it makes a lot of sense samita do, do you want to add something on this 
what uh, what i see at the moment for this um citizenship um i think now women are uh, they are losing their right right now uh, because of this recent decision women marrying from other countries to nepal nepali uh, men nepali people i i think they have more challenges ahead and also as uh, pallavi said like um the children if they are uh, separated or if they are divorced so what about their children they won't be able to uh, give citizenship uh, to their children either from the from the name of mother right and and something something i've noticed living here is how important that citizenship paper is to get many administrative uh services done for example to enroll in higher education um that citizenship paper is extremely important in order to do a lot of very basic and important uh things in your life right yeah can i add something on this uh when we talk about citizenship it's already difficult for modesi women and modesi men to get citizenship even if they are born and brought up everything in nepal in my own experience i have seen you know uh, at the cdo office which provides the citizenship they ask a lot of question even if you have all the documents they ask they try to verify that the person is not indian by just looking at their face and then ethnicity a lot of question is already placed them so i don't understand after this kind of law you know what kind of more challenges would come for them and if i am recently reading a lot about citizenship and some cases done in kapilvastu and women who uh, who are married and who did not get the citizenship you know because sometimes the family restricts the citizenship for the women thinking that they would take over the property and all that uh, they have major challenges they can't even report for domestic violence it gets difficult to get justice for domestic violence as simple as that and and and, uh, and you know once and, and some of the women who are divorced they are already facing uh, challenges to get the property for their children there's cases of women getting citizenship at the age of 73 you know it already says a lot about this country so bringing out these kind of difficult laws and clauses are going to make you know move women back in progress you know whatever progress we have achieved now it's going to you know all finish i'd like to add like if that woman uh, wants to do something kind of like enterprise if she she wants to do something uh for herself for the her for her family and she's not she will not she won't be able to do that because she doesn't have the uh, citizenship certificate and that means she's again uh, dependent on her husband and family and uh, she has to bear everything whatever she has in the family violence she has to keep quiet if she wants to do her further uh, education further studies and she stopped there Uh, you know so so many challenges uh, women will be facing uh, because of this uh, um, law okay Th- thanks to both of you for that L- let me ask this other one of the other questions that i had on the list um, and maybe now it sounds a bit um, naive or overly optimistic and you can tell me if that's the case the question is whether or not the pandemic has in some way created any opportunities for women or other avenues that could result in women being empowered and uh, the one that i was speaking briefly to palavi about earlier was as someone who spends a lot of time online i see lots of women uh talking online on twitter particularly um being very outspoken and sharing their opinions and i'm wondering if more women uh given the pandemic are now going online and having an opportunity to voice um you know their their ideas and their opinions could that possibly be seen as a positive result of the pandemic or am i trying too hard to find something positive to point at that's true actually we women are more active on social media we are trying to voice out our concern and even in terms of you know the citizenship law we are trying to create awareness online because somehow the lockdown has prevented us and the situation has prevented us from going to the street you know doing programs and all kind of thing social media has given that access 
Uh, also, um, recently, we have a lot of webinars going on, if you must have like noticed it. And in these webinars, uh, we see a lot of uh, local representatives, local rep women representatives, mostly who didn't really have that kind of access. And I heard that some women even got trainings to attend these webinars, which is positive. But then again, it's like a limited um, progress, I would say. Uh, women who have access to internet, women who have access to, you know, these kind of facilities can only work, um, you know, be active on social media or be active in the webinars. It's particularly very difficult for women from the, you know, uh, more um, rural areas. Uh, my, I'll give you my example. I tried to hold a webinar with uh, around six women representatives uh, from uh, province two, but unfortunately two of them couldn't attend because of uh, internet access. It says a lot that, uh, you know, how difficult it is for women, even in pandemic uh, situation, to not get what other women are getting. So definitely there is a small positive um, thing that has happened. Um, but like you said, it's limited to a certain subset of women and, and it, may, it may also be temporary once the pandemic is over, then we're not sure how things will, how will look then. Samita, what do you think, is there anything, has the pandemic possibly created any opportunities for women or as we discussed earlier, is most of the news negative for women? Women like us who have access to internet or online and, and these webinars uh, and these meet online meetings, we got, uh, you know, those kind of opportunities. But still a majority women, they do not have any opportunity. I, I, don't, I don't see at least in the rural setting, rural uh, areas, women, they do not have any opportunity. Uh, it's only for the few people, few women, and uh, women from the towns and urban areas. Yeah, for the majority of women, it's the same. Right, okay. Well, I think my nature is to be um, positive, but I think in that case, maybe I was trying too hard to find something positive. But you know, then that leads me to what I have here is the last question, which is, you know, the the women's movement in Nepal has a long history. I mean, many women have obviously been fighting for a long time to improve the lives of other women and girls in Nepal. Progress is happening, but it's slow. And now, and now the pandemic is hit to even slow things down further, perhaps, hopefully temporarily only. But if we were to try to come up with some new ways of accelerating the positive changes. So given the old system that, that was existing before the pandemic, if we were to make some changes to improve the lives of women and to bring about equality more quickly, um, you know, what could that be? And I wrote, I wrote down two things, two ideas. One is better education of boys uh, and young men, because we, we seem to always rely on girls and women. So I'll give you one example, is every few years, this idea comes up that, you know, we need to offer self-defense classes to girls to, so they can protect themselves against violence and sexual violence, which of course is a good thing. But when I think about this, I think, the, the burden is already on women who are victims of the violence. And now we're putting another burden on them to somehow prevent or defend against the violence. When in fact, men and boys should be growing up with different ideas about girls and women and educated about how to treat girls and women. So that's just one instance where I hope that better education about equality and the need for respecting and treating girls the way boys treat men and boys, how that education might help us make a better world. And then the other idea we kind of talked about already is the impact of federalism and how more women, on paper at least, will be empowered to take on political roles and I think we are slowly seeing that the impact of the impact of that can be real, 
but it's going to take a long time before those simple political changes also translate into some cultural shifts so that a woman in a position of power actually has the power and can wield the power. Yeah. I don't know what you think of those or if you have other ideas how we can move more quickly towards a more equal country. We have um, we have worked so much on women's empowerment or girls' empowerment. Um, we have been working and uh, we will have to continue that, of course. Uh, but you know how I see these days is we have to educate boys and men. And as you said earlier, we have to uh, bring up our uh, boy children in such a way that they respect their sisters, respect their mothers and you know women as a whole. Uh, it's not only empowering um, uh, girls and women, but we have to um, educate our sons, our brothers in the in the, in such a way that uh, they see equality in a different way uh, they respect women so that uh, so that they, they respect their girlfriends um, so that girls they do not have to uh, learn you know uh, uh, what you say a martial art uh, to protect themselves we have to teach our you know boys uh, let them let the girls and women do you know whatever they want to do and uh, not to restrict them in the, and confine them in a in a in this patriarchal society. Uh, otherwise, it's only you know um, giving pressure to women and girls doing this and that. I don't think that that works you know that way. Uh, so we need to invest on boys and men's education as well. Okay, thank you, Pallavi. What do you have? What what great ideas do you have for fixing the uh, the, the state of the world? Uh, that's a very difficult question, but uh, I agree with Samita Ji when she says that uh, you know um, um, boys and men uh, should be given proper education. But at the same time, I feel like our education system has to be changed. It has to be progressive now. Because we can't just say that only men are patriarchal in their mindset. If we want to uproot that entire patriarchal system, we need to give that kind of education from the beginning. So even the women who are patriarchal, their mindset also has to be changed. Um, in terms of uh, other things that I have in my mind is uh, we talked about uh, these webinars and you know um, these platforms on social media. Uh, but if you look at them properly, we have mostly men speaking out. So there is this another kind of group on social media who calls out these kind of webinars where we want women to speak there. Because, you know, men cannot understand the lived experiences of women. We need more women to share their problems, their issues, their, you know, the related things uh, with their topic. Uh, likewise, uh, you said that, you know, Nepal's women's rights movement has a long history. And that's true. We have a long history of women's rights movement. But somehow I believe that the women's rights movement needs to change a little bit. Uh, because until now, I believe women's rights movement has hardly been inclusive. Uh, like Samita Ji said in the beginning that women in Madhis are more, you know, uh, face more challenges because Madhis is marginalized, you know. So we need more marginalized women coming in the leadership position, even in the women's movement. It is because the women's movement is not inclusive that we are having a difficult time to create awareness that the citizenship bill is going to affect the Madhisi women differently. Uh, we are having difficulty in explaining that, uh, you know, Dalit women, the Musahar community who are stateless for so many years, the bill doesn't even cover them. So we need this kind of change in the women's movement and that can only happen if we try to build alliance between different kinds of women from different backgrounds. We need that. and. In terms of, you know, political representation, the quota system that Nepal has, I believe the quota system is a bit flawed because we only have nomination-based quota system. We don't have a position reserved for women. Uh, for example, in some municipalities, we have both men in both the position, the deputy mayor as well as the mayor. And that kind of things happen only because the quota system is nomination-based, not position-based. 
So we need changes at different levels, from the government to the NGO sectors. We need more NGO intervention in Madhis. Uh, there's a lot of uh, new NGOs working in Madhis right now, and I hear about them, but still it's not enough. We need more of that because, you know, we need different kinds of intervention in different parts of the country based on their situation, their status of marginalization, and, you know, discrimination from the state and from the society. Great. Thank you. I mean, that that brings up a, a broader point, I think, maybe this idea of marginalization, which is a cross cutting issue. Right. I know from my health reporting, for example, that often we bring up how Nepal has made great progress in reducing rates of things like maternal mortality, child mortality, malnutrition, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, there are these pockets where it persists or is even in some cases getting worse. And these are, you know, they can be very remote parts of the country or they can also be groups of people, right? Particularly marginalized groups of people. And you've just named some of them indigenous groups, Dalit groups of people. Um, I agree um, uh, with Pallaviji. And we have to see, uh, yeah, women's movement that, uh, yeah, we have a long history. And uh, until now, uh, we see like um, still, women from elite class or women women from accessible areas they are the ones um you know who uh, whom we see um all the time but uh yeah um women from the marginalized women from dalit community women from madhes women from karnali um you know and women from mountains they have to um we have to include them as a Nepali citizen, as a human being, not only, you know, women from the accessible areas. So they have to, they still have to come forward. So we need to work with them uh, a lot. So, so that, you know, our movement represents from all over the country. So that's the only, that's, that's the way that we can include all the women from all over the places marginalized places or remote area uh, women. Thank you. Let me ask you one question, Samita. I was thinking, if you look back over the work that you've done uh, in the last, you said, 17 or 18 years, uh, particularly on the issue of uter uterine prolapse, how, if, if you were able to go back and do it all over again, what would be the things that you would do differently to make it more successful? Is there one of, would you change your approach somehow? Um, would you focus on something differently? Would you deal with people differently? Would you engage different people? Um, you know, and, and can we learn any lessons from that about the, in general, dealing with women's empowerment? But the first part first, I mean, is there, if you were, if someone were to say to you, okay, now you're going back 20 years to do this all over again, how would you do it better this time? There is some changes, but it got, it gets stuck there. For example, the um, uh, problem of Ukraine prolapse, uh, we did um, advocacy and it went to up to the some label. For, for example, women got a free surgical treatment from the government. Now, uh, we thought, I mean, it went um, to that label and government is taking responsibility for that, you know, and it's not, it's going down at the moment. So we have to start all over again. So sometimes I feel, you know, if we don't keep that track, don't um, catch that momentum, that it falls down. So we have to keep on. Uh, advocating to the concern to the you know at the from the grassroots to the state label right and and I wonder this reminds me of what Pallavi was saying about changing the system. The system itself is I think in terms of you're speaking in terms of education, maybe the system itself is patriarchal, so if you don't have support from within, you can have all of these decisions made. 
at the top level, but there's no easy way for them to be absorbed uh, or passed through the system, right? Um, so you're always, it's like you're always fighting for a new decision. There are so many, like, um, there are so many um, changes, like, you know, from our constitution, from the policies and um, in uh, laws, you know, there are so many uh, new uh, legal procedure uh, laws, you know, bills. But again, the implementation label, and we have to, uh, you know, push uh, the government, we have to push the government every time. Uh, to implement that uh, policies and the you know the laws. For example, the um, uh, this um, child marriage law. For example, the uh, law um, regarding chowpuri. You know, it's only in the law, and um, it's not moving on uh, like what we did in the at the policy level. You you do not see any any changes in the community, and some changes yes, but very slow. Does that mean, this is maybe a simplistic question, but does that mean that you need always to have a two-pronged a two approach? On one side, you need to be working on policy advocacy, and on the other side, you need to be working on changing the culture, which means, for the most part, education. Is that, is that right? Is that... I completely agree, agree with the two-pronged um, two approach. Um, educating grassroots plus um, policy label. Uh, no, I think uh, Samita ji is absolutely correct. Uh, we have to go in um, to prong uh, uh, way. Uh, first of all, we have to you know advocate, do a lot of policy advocacy, and make sure that all the changes that's there in the law gets implemented in the grassroots through education, uh, through awareness, uh, and for that we need to include the grassroots people in the program. You know, if they are represented there uh, while giving these kind of educational programs, I think the local people take it more positively. Uh, it's my own example when um, uh, I was going for research in province two and me being from province two, understanding their language, their culture and everything. I felt like people were more comfortable in sharing with me. And it was different from other uh, for other people who went for the same research. I could get more insights, and others they had difficult time taking insights from the, you know, from the environment. So I, I agree with this uh, two pronged uh, system. I'd like to say that women's empowerment in Nepal isn't just about economic issue. Definitely, it's economic, and you need to empower women economically. Uh, but it should also be taken as social and political issues. Uh, for example, if uh, we talk about the political issues, the citizenship is one of the major political issue right now. And if this citizenship clause comes into implementation, we have large number of women who will become stateless. That will prevent the women's empowerment for even economic empowerment. So I think that uh, there should be advocacy, movement, awareness and all kinds of uh, different kinds of mechanism to address structures that discriminate women, which is not happening right now, because as I said earlier, women's movement in Nepal has hardly been inclusive. Uh, from intersectional point of view, women from different caste, ethnicity have different lived experiences. And only one or two dominant group of women can, cannot address or cannot lead this movement so therefore, we need women's alliance building among all different kinds of women without overpowering each other, keeping in mind that some women are more discriminated and more marginalized. Okay, okay, thank you. Uh, Samita and Pallavi, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I think we had a really interesting discussion. I know that we couldn't address all of the topics when it comes to uh, women's empowerment and women's rights in Nepal. But we made a start and hopefully um, that'll provoke some, some discussion or some thought among other people as well. And maybe one day we'll be able to continue the conversation. So again, thank you for coming on and taking the time to discuss this with me. Uh, thank you, Marty, for inviting me and providing this opportunity to share my experiences and thoughts about women empowerment. Um, I hope we will continue this discussion next time as well.
Thank you very much, Marty. Thank you very much for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about the women's issues in Nepal. It was good.